It's April 15th, 1955, in Portland, Oregon. The Meyer and Frank department store is a Portland institution. At 12 stories, the Art Deco building is the tallest in the city and runs for a full block. Inside, the world's longest escalator serves 11 acres of floor space. That would be the same as six soccer fields. Shoppers can find just about anything they want in here, from shirts and pants to jewelry and crockery. There's even a pharmacy, a pet store, and several delis. It's a constant bustling hub of business. The owner of the department store, Aaron Frank, is in his top floor office. He's holding an envelope that's just been delivered by a clerk who works on the ground floor. It has his name on it. And in the bottom left corner, the word important has been scrawled messily. He carefully opens the flap and pulls out the letter. The writing covers two pages, though Aaron doesn't make it past the shocking first line. It says, about the time you receive this, a bomb will explode in your store. Panic instantly sets in. He throws the letter onto his desk and reaches for the telephone. He needs the police urgently, but as his hand closes around the receiver, there's a deafening explosion from one of the floors below. On the third floor, the men's bathroom door is blown off its hinges. Shoppers drop to the ground as shattered fragments of tile and porcelain are blasted into the store. Every window pane on the level smashes, showering passers-by on the street below with jagged shards of glass. The explosion is so huge that a wash basin propelled by the blast lands half a block away. Black smoke curls and billows from the ruined bathroom. The smell of gunpowder hangs thick in the air. The employees of the store, along with Aaron Frank, work quickly to evacuate the building. Remarkably, there are no deaths and only two minor injuries. A janitor was knocked over by the bathroom door as it exploded from its frame, but was pretty much unharmed. Outside, a woman was cut by falling glass and needed 15 stitches to close the wound on her face. Aside from that, nobody got hurt. Now the crowd watches as fire trucks arrive with their sirens blaring. The brave firefighters assemble their equipment and climb up their ladders to the demolished third floor. While they work, police officers form a cordon around the building, turning away intrepid reporters. Later, when the building is declared safe, Aaron Frank leads Captain of Detectives William Brown to his office. The detective, sometimes known as Big Bill, is a tall, heavyset man, the kind that could put the fear of God into most criminals. He takes his glasses from his pocket and perches them on his nose. Aaron passes him the extortion letter. The contents are startling. The note states that today's bomb was merely a warning and that a second bomb has been hidden in the store. This one is bigger, stronger. It's been rigged to a timer and will detonate at some point during the next day. Saturday's the busiest day of the week, and Aaron knows 
that if a bigger bomb was to go off, the number of casualties would be catastrophic. The bomber does offer one way out, though. He will provide the location of the bomb and instructions on how to dismantle it safely. All Aaron Frank has to do is cough up $50,000. The bombing of the Meyer and Frank department store shocks the city. The store is a beloved Portland landmark. The king of Hollywood himself, Clark Gable, worked there selling neckties before finding fame as an actor. Who would want to do it harm? Detective Brown, who's close to retirement, vows to see the case through to the end. But with little evidence to go on and the threat of an even more powerful blast, can the detective outsmart the department store bomber? Time Magazine will go on to call it one of the most extraordinary extortion plots in criminal history. That it is. So extraordinary, in fact, that it reads like the plot of a blockbuster movie. Except every single word of this story is true. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're following Detective Bill Brown. He's been on the force for a long time and has seen everything there is to be seen. Or so he thought. A ticking clock, the prospect of a hidden bomb, and an unlikely culprit will seal this as the most bizarre case he's ever had to work. From Noiser, this is the case of the blind leading the blind. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Later that afternoon, Aaron Frank agrees to pay the extortion money. Detective Brown sits at a desk and rereads the letter from the bomber to make sure he gets the details correct. The demands are very specific. Aaron Frank is to place $50,000 in five, 10, and $20 bills in a light-colored briefcase. A store representative should then bring the briefcase to the front of the Imperial Hotel between 6.30 and 7 p.m where he should loiter for 10 minutes. Whoever brings it should have a white carnation stuck to their lapel so the bomber can identify them. After waiting in front of the hotel for the required amount of time, they should proceed to a phone booth two blocks away to the north. When they get there, they'll receive a call with further information. But why is the bomber leading them to different locations? Wouldn't it be easier to just state a time and place for the handover and then make their getaway? Whoever's behind the extortion is clearly worried about the cops because there's one more important note. The letter categorically states that the police must not get involved. Brown devises a plan. He figures that if the bomber is an experienced criminal, He'll know who the main players in the police are, but he won't know any of the new recruits. 
Brown calls a rookie police officer, Pear Lyons. He figures that the new cop with his clean-shaven face and youthful features can pass for a store employee. Lyons is briefed on what's about to go down. While that's happening, Brown posts a number of plainclothes officers to walk the streets to make sure Lyons is kept under surveillance at all times. In a department store changing room, Lyons slips into a suit and fixes a white carnation to his lapel. He studies his reflection in the mirror and straightens the flower. From the other side of the curtain, Brown shouts, Lines, it's time to go. Four hours after the initial blast, Lines leaves the store. As per the instructions, he's carrying a briefcase containing $50,000. The darkness of the night is drawing in. Rain pours from the heavens. The lights and neon signs of the city reflect in the street's many puddles. Folks wanting to get home pound the sidewalks, umbrellas held high. Lines walks four blocks towards the Imperial Hotel. When he reaches the Portland landmark, he stops. As instructed, he waits for 10 minutes in front of the doors. While he lingers, he glances around. Opposite him, in a sheltered doorway, is a silhouette of a person. Lines can't make out any features as they were shrouded in darkness. Could it be the bomber? Checking that their instructions are being followed? Are they making sure that Lines isn't a cop? Or is it someone simply sheltering from the downpour? Once the 10 minutes are up, the rookie police officer walks two more blocks. Lines slips into the Bell Telephone Exchange Building and makes his way to booth number 15. He waits by the payphone, and at 7.08 p.m., it rings. A man with a nervous, medium-high, and rather soft voice asks if Lyons has the money. He confirms that he does, and is told to return to the Imperial Hotel. The bomber explains that inside the lobby, there's a row of phone booths, Lines is to go to phone booth three and look under the chair. With that, the bomber hangs up. Lines replaces the phone and strides out of the building into the pouring rain. Lines retraces his steps back to the Imperial Hotel. The sidewalks are busy. He's jostled by men and women dressed in fancy clothes, Friday night revelers who can't wait to get to the next bar. When Lyons reaches the hotel, a porter holds the door open for him. The lobby's a hive of activity. Well-dressed receptionists behind a vast mahogany desk check in weary guests. Bellboys guide them to their room, pulling their luggage along. Double doors at the back of the room lead to a restaurant from which gentle piano music drifts. Lyons runs a hand through his sopping hair and marches to the phone booth. In the third one along, he sits on the wooden bench seat and reaches underneath. Secured to the bottom is an envelope. Lines removes the tape and opens the flap. Inside is a piece of paper and a small key. The typed note is short. All it says is, 
that he should go to Union Street Station and find baggage locker 1037. Lyons checks the rest of the booth, just in case the bombers left something behind by mistake. But there's nothing. It seems they're dealing with a very crafty individual indeed. He pockets the key and leaves. Is the baggage locker the drop-off point? It would make sense, right? It's secure. And in all likelihood, the bomber's the only other person with a key. Is this strange scavenger hunt about to come to an end? Well, there's only one way to find out. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Did you know you can listen to new episodes of Detectives Don't Sleep a week early by subscribing to Noiser Plus? For more information, head to Noiser.com or click the link in the episode description. The walk from the hotel to the station only takes 15 minutes. Not long, but enough time to soak lines to his skin. Union Street Station has the usual mix of tourists and commuters passing through it. Outside, some linger to admire the 150-foot tower clock, now complete with a decorative neon sign. Others stomp towards the waiting taxis, eager to get home. Lines weaves his way through the bustling evening crowds. He checks the letter again and makes his way to the baggage lockers. Here, he searches the rows of metal boxes and finally finds the one he needs, number 1037. He inserts the key and twists. The door opens with a loud squeak. He peers inside, hoping that this is it, that this wild goose chase will finally be over but it seems the bomber isn't finished with him just yet. Inside is yet another manila envelope and another set of typewritten instructions. He pulls open the flap and reads. The letter tells Lines to make his way to a yellow cab company taxi stand. Here, he should book a taxi with some strange conditions. First, it can't have a two-way radio. Second, it has to travel 125 miles to the city of Eugene. But here's the kicker. It can't ever exceed 25 miles per hour. The letter says that at some point in the journey, a car will pull in behind the taxi and flash its lights three times. That's the signal for the driver to pull over. 
When the taxi comes to a stop, Lines is instructed to open the right rear door and set the briefcase outside. The taxi should then drive on for five miles before turning around and returning to Portland. If no car signals them between Portland and Eugene, the taxi is to turn around when it hits the city limits and return to its original destination. Okay, now, let's just think about this for a second. The taxi thing begs a question. Does the extortionist really know what he's doing? As you see, the main route between the cities is a two-lane highway. Traveling at 25 miles an hour would cause a huge traffic jam, and it would make it difficult for the contact to take place. This just might imply that the bomber's from out of town and doesn't really know the road system in Oregon, or that this is the first time he's trying something like this. Either way, this latest instruction is sure to cause some trouble. Lyons closes the locker door and pockets the letter. He trudges across the yellow taxi company office on the opposite side of the station. His shoulders are slumped. Driving to Eugene and back is going to take most of the night. At the office, the clerk double-checks that they've heard Lyons' request correctly. The rookie cop confirms that he would indeed like to travel to Eugene at 25 miles per hour. It takes some time for the taxi company to locate a car without a radio. So now it's already late when Lyons and his driver make it onto the highway. They crawl along the blacktop, causing an almighty traffic jam. At one point, the trail of cars behind them stretches for two miles. How can the bomber possibly signal them like this? No one can pass each other, so how's he supposed to get close enough? A cacophony of angry horn blasts fill the air. At one point, a furious truck driver overtakes, though he cuts in early. The taxi driver slams on his brakes, acrid smoke billows from the tires. It's a close one, but they just avoid being smashed into. Normally, it would take around two hours to travel from Portland to Eugene, but because of the imposed speed limit, it takes lines five hours. It's just after one o'clock, the taxi reaches the city limits and turns around. Still traveling at 25 miles per hour, the drive back to Portland takes another five hours. Lines keeps glancing out of the back window, but the three flashes of light never happen. No contact is ever made. Has the extortionist been spooked? Has he been blocked by the traffic jam that his own instructions have created? Or is this simply another part of the peculiar scavenger hunt? When Lyons arrives back in Portland early on Saturday morning, he goes straight to the department store. He's exhausted, but he wants to wait around in case the extortionist gets in touch. <laughs> he never does. Detective Brown thanks Lyons for his efforts and sends him home to rest. It seems that the bomber didn't want his money after all. Did he know Lyons was a police officer from the start? Is that why he never made contact? Or did he simply realize that 
he never stood a chance of getting away with the money. So he pulled the plug on the whole scheme. Brown doesn't have time to second guess the bomber's reasons for not showing. It's stated in the original extortion letter that a more powerful bomb would go off if the money was not handed over. Brown's now in a race against the clock to locate and dismantle the explosive device before it's too late. It's now early on Saturday, the 16th of April, 1955. The second explosion is set to detonate at some point today. There's no time to waste. Brown divides the 50 detectives available to him into teams. He assigns them to the various floors and they comb the enormous department store searching for the bomb. While they hunt for the explosive, bomb squad member, Lieutenant Dean Blackwood, visits the third floor bathroom where the first bomb went off. He examines the debris, looking for materials that could help him narrow down what type of bomb had been used. He can't find a clock, a timer, or anything else that bomb makers would normally use. Blackwood concludes that the explosive device was rudimentary, just sticks of dynamite taped together and set off with a slow-burning fuse. He takes his findings to Brown. Let's just stop here for a minute to take this in. Time bombs have been used as far back as 1776, nearly 200 years before the Meyer and Frank attack. They're relatively simple to make if you're criminally minded. If Blackwood's correct, and the blast in the bathroom really was caused by sticks of dynamite, maybe the bomber isn't the criminal mastermind he's made himself out to be after all. Brown considers the information presented to him by Blackwood. He thinks the bomber is bluffing, that there's no other hidden explosive in the store. Still, he tells Aaron Frank to keep his shop closed for the day, just in case he's wrong. It's an anxious wait, but when Sunday rolls around, Brown's hunch is proven right. There never was another device. Despite the fact that they're probably dealing with a novice, Brown still feels inclined to check up on known bomber extortionists. One is in prison in Mexico, and another is incarcerated in San Quentin. Anyone else known to the police were nowhere near Portland when the blast went off and have alibis to prove it. Which leaves Brown where, exactly? I mean, it seems that any one of Portland's 370,000 strong population could have snuck that dynamite in. Undeterred, Brown asks Aaron Frank to call in all of his employees. Over the course of the day, every clerk, security guard, and manager is questioned. Brown himself focuses on the employees who were working on the third floor on the day of the blast. One clerk tells him that she remembers a man and a woman walking towards the third floor stairwell shortly before the explosion. The man's movements were slow and careful. The clerk thinks that he might have been old and that the woman was his helper. Another employee who'd been working near the stairwell also remembers the couple. She got a good look at the man, who appeared to be in his 30s. 
She remembers him because she thought it was odd that he was wearing sunglasses indoors. Brown's just wrapping up when a longtime store employee approaches him. She tells him that she was the one who delivered the letter to Aaron Frank. A woman had dropped it off, though it didn't seem suspicious at the time. Mr. Frank received lots of correspondence after all. Surely, it can't be a coincidence. Could this be the same woman who was seen with the bespectacled man? After a full day of questioning, Brown now has two suspects. But there isn't much to go on. No one could describe the woman, and all they know about the man is that he was wearing dark glasses. Probably some sort of disguise. Just who is the mysterious pair? And if they didn't collect the money, where are they now? Could they be plotting something else, something bigger, or they laying low. It seems like the end of the line for the investigation, but there's one thing the best detectives all have in common. Dead ends don't stop them. It's Monday, April 17th, 1955. Two days after the explosion and the Meyer and Frank department store is reopened. Entrances and exits are flanked by police officers. Aaron Frank walks among the shoppers, a reassuring gesture to show his patrons that everything is okay. Detective Brown is a couple blocks away at police headquarters. He's assessing the scant evidence they have. All there is is a basic description of the two suspects and a few typewritten notes, which may just be enough. Brown knows that every typewriter in the world has a unique set of keys. Each company uses a slightly different font in order to give consumers some choice. This makes the typewriter's make and model easy to distinguish. And furthermore, individual typewriters can be identified by characteristics like imperfect letters or worn keys. With this in mind, Detective Brown gathers up the note sent to Aaron Frank and the ones collected by Officer Lines during the scavenger hunt, and he takes them to an expert. After careful study, they believe the notes were written using a Royal Standard typewriter. That doesn't really help them much. You see, the Royal Standard is a popular model. They're believed to be around three million of them in circulation worldwide, in Portland, the brand of typewriter is used in schools, colleges, and offices, not to mention those owned by private citizens. Finding the one used to type these notes would be like finding a needle in a haystack. But it's the only evidence Brown has. So he runs with it. He divides the city into four sections and sends his men to check out all the typewriters in their quadrant. It's frustrating and time-consuming work. While his men are out on Portland streets, Brown has an idea that might narrow down their search. If the bomber had used his own typewriter to create the extortion notes, he might have used it in previous scams. He heads down to the Portland Better Business Bureau. 
a place that handles mail fraud and business scams. By law, they're required to keep any correspondence used in these types of swindles. Brown brings two postal inspectors with him that he's chosen especially for this job. You see, these two men can spot typewriter keystroke similarities with their naked eye. He asks them to examine the bomber's notes, and then to go through the business bureau's collection to see if there are any matches. The only trouble is, there are thousands of letters. All Brown can do now is sit back and pray for a result, and that may take some time. It's December 15, 1955, eight months after the department store bombing. The two postal inspectors are in Brown's office. The detective sits behind a busy desk with a smile on his face. It seems the lengthy search has proven worthwhile after all. After months of careful examination, the inspectors finally found a match. To make sure, they send sample copies to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. The results arrived back that very morning, confirming a 100% match. There's a crackle of electricity in the air, that feeling just before a case is blown wide open. It seems the letters were written by a man named Clarence Petticord on his trusty Royal Standard typewriter. Years ago, he tried to swindle people by selling a fake battery restoration product called New Charge. Brown pushes himself out of his chair. After all these months of waiting, he's eager to get to Petticord's home and make the arrest. The postal inspectors, though, aren't quite as enthusiastic. They have one final piece of surprising information. Clarence Petticord is blind. Now, obviously, blind people are just as capable of criminality as anyone else. Clarence could easily have planted a couple of sticks of dynamite in a store that he knew well. But the scavenger hunt that Lyons went on involved a long drive to Eugene. Does that suggest that Clarence wasn't working alone? The FBI are convinced the letters are a 100% match, that they were typed on Clarence's royal standard. Brown needs answers. As Petticord has been in trouble with police before, they have his address on file. He grabs his coat and heads to the car. It's time to pay Mr. Clarence Petticord a visit. 20 minutes later, Brown stops his car outside a flimsy dwelling on North Kimball Avenue. It's a neighborhood in the north of the city that was put up as temporary war housing over a decade ago and left to rot ever since. The timber houses are dilapidated with peeling paint and cracked windows. The roads outside are littered with deep potholes. Brown walks up the steps of Clarence's home and knocks on the door. A minute later, a woman answers. Her eyes drift to Brown's police badge and she nods her head in resignation. She says, we've got a thousand and one judgments against us and bill collectors hound us all the time. Having the police on her doorstep seems to be a common occurrence. 
Brown asks if he can speak to Clarence, and she leads him into a small living space in need of decoration. In the corner of the room, there's a little Christmas tree. There are a couple of baubles on its bare branches and only a handful of gifts underneath. And there, on a shabby sofa in the center of the room, sits Clarence. Five children ranging from two to 12 years old surround him. His dark glasses obscure his eyes. But when one of his children exclaims that the police are here, he simply nods and stands up. He bids his family a tearful goodbye, hugging each child and kissing his wife on the cheek. Brown arrests him in the hallway, away from his children. His deputy leads Clarence to the waiting squad car. Detective Brown would later admit to a Portland journalist that it was the most heartbreaking arrest of his career. Later that day, in an interview room, Clarence admits to the bombing of the department store. When Detective Brown digs a little deeper, he finds it's a tragic, almost unbelievable tale that brought him to this point. He settles back in his chair as Clarence begins his story. Clarence Petticord was born in 1917 in New Mexico. He lived a normal life until the summer of 1936 when tragedy struck. As he was fixing a fridge, part of it broke off, spewing toxic gas into Clarence's eyes. As he lay on the ground writhing in pain, a doctor arrived and prescribed a walk. Yeah, you heard right, a walk. The doctor told Clarence that sunshine and fresh air would fix his eyes. Of course, it was wrong. Clarence quickly sought a second opinion and was duly taken to the hospital. The inside of the ambulance was the last thing Clarence ever saw. A couple of weeks later, he was given a seeing eye dog named Duke, and they became best buddies. Together, they climbed Beacon Rock, an 848-foot-high remnant of an ancient volcano. The stunt captured the public's attention, and a vending machine company offered Clarence the opportunity to run a franchise. Unfortunately, due to sugar rationing during World War II, the company shut down not long after. Untroubled, Clarence started a food stall near the shipyards in Portland. One day, whether by accident or not, Clarence's dog was poisoned. He was devastated at the loss of his beloved pet and invaluable assistant. He immediately closed down the stall and sank into a pit of depression. It was around this time that Clarence learned of a pioneering cornea surgery that could restore his sight. He didn't have the money to pay for the operation. And this was when he first started flirting with criminality. First, he tried renting out a house in California that didn't belong to him. Then, he ran away with the money. Police found out and arrested him, though he managed to avoid jail time. Next, he started a business selling battery restoratives. This was an illegal way of recharging dead batteries, therefore saving the consumer money. Battery companies soon heard about Clarence's scam and made a whole heap of trouble for him. 
his product was seen to be eating into their profits, and that wasn't okay. Soon after, he was forced to shut down. With his illegal businesses proving useless, he made a new plan. He would walk from his home on the west coast of America all the way to New York on the opposite side of the country. He hoped people along the way would sponsor him. When he reached Detroit, he was invited on a radio show called We the People. A businessman from Saratoga Springs in New York heard the interview and offered to pay for the surgery. In December 1948, Clarence went under the knife. When he woke up, he was elated to find that the surgery was a success. He could see out of one eye. However, as the doctor approached him with scissors to snip some of the stitches, Clarence recoiled, knocking his head on the bed. Immediately, his vision disappeared. He was blind again. Back in Portland, Clarence returned to a life of crime. He reasoned that he'd tried to do the right thing too many times, and the world had shot him down over and over again. He had a family to take care of, a wife and kids, five of them. He wasn't going to let them down. So he got involved in some shady businesses, none of which lasted for very long. Money ran low. Loans were taken out that couldn't be repaid. Desperation took hold. So, too, did the idea of blackmail and bombs. Back in the interview room, Detective Brown regards Clarence Petticord with pity. Life has not been fair to the man, but that's no reason to bomb a public building. Innocent people could have been killed. Clarence will have to pay for what he did. And then... There's the small matter of an accomplice. How could a blind man enact an elaborate scheme involving driving without help? Brown is convinced that Clarence didn't act alone. When questioned about it, Clarence insists that he did. While some of his fellow officers are known for using intimidation or even physically harming a suspect in order to get an admission of guilt, Brown prefers a more human approach. He knows that sometimes the best way to get a confession is simply to get the perp to talk about anything, their favorite food or a vacation spot, you name it. So, while he and Clarence shoot the breeze, he casually slips in another question. Who's been helping you? Clarence utters a name, Joyce Keller, his sister-in-law. When he realizes what he's done, he tries to backtrack. He asks for the statements to be retracted, but already Brown's partner is out of the door and on the hunt for Joyce. They find her that night at her home. She's been to a few bars earlier and is a little under the influence. The cops let her sleep it off in a jail cell. When she's interviewed in the morning, Joyce Keller denies any involvement in the bombing. A clerk from the department store is called down to the police station and asked to identify her. The clerk studies a photograph of Joyce and states that it's definitely the same woman who handed in the extortion letter to be delivered to Aaron Frank. While Joyce Keller stays silent, Clarence Petticord seems only too happy to get his confession off his chest. 
He was the one who brought the dynamite and put the scavenger hunt together. It was all his idea. He just needed someone to help him set it up. Having used Joyce's name one time, he now refers to his helper as the woman. He tells Detective Brown that there never was a second bomb, and he didn't intend to hurt anyone with the first one. He just wanted to scare Aaron Frank into giving over $50,000. Originally, he planned on asking a store employee to throw the suitcase filled with money out of a moving train. Though he quickly abandoned that idea. The thought of running after a moving locomotive with nothing but his cane to guide him seemed ridiculous. Instead, he decided on the taxi idea. Of course, that plan didn't work either. After watching the blast rip through the third floor of the department store, Clarence's female helper was devastated. She told him then and there that she was done. Without her, he had no way of following a taxi. So, he had to abandon his scheme. With enough evidence against them, Clarence and Joyce are charged and detained. They spend the Christmas holiday in jail. Brown's deputy, saddened by what he saw at the Petticourt house, arranges a collection for the five children. It'll be the last Christmas they spend as a family. Dorothy Petticord, Clarence's wife, would later check herself into a mental hospital, meaning the kids were put into care. Clarence's bomb plot has blown his family apart. In January 1956, Clarence pleads guilty to the bombing. He thinks that the judge might feel sorry for him, what with his tragic backstory and all, and go easy on him. But that's not the case. The judge, Alfred P. Dobson, throws the book at him, sentencing Clarence Petticord to 20 years in prison. It's not the last time Clarence will appear in court. A couple of months later, he's asked to be the star witness in the trial of Joyce Keller. It's May 15, 1956. Clarence is in the witness box in the county courtroom. When asked about his helper, he tells the judge that he never had an accomplice, that he acted alone from the start. The judge urges Clarence to tell him the truth, but he sticks resolutely to his story. Without his testimony, there's not enough evidence to hold Joyce Keller. She is then released without charge. Clarence Petticord is freed from jail in 1966. After serving 10 years, he passes away on March 25th, 1978, at the age of 59. The investigation and loss of earnings at the department store cost the city of Portland nearly $200,000. It's almost $2 million in today's money. Newspaper reports and books about the bombing place Clarence Petticord at the center of the story. Perhaps rightfully so. He's a peculiar man with a harrowing backstory and a penchant for criminality. He's a journalist's dream. On the other hand, Detective William Brown's role in the story is almost forgotten. Not much is known about his life before or after the case. One thing's for certain, though. Without him, it's safe to say that the case of the Meyer and Frank bombing would likely have gone unsolved. 
mean, after all, it was his idea to check the typewriters, his idea to contact the business bureau and compare extortion letters. He was the one who made the arrest. William Brown may not be a household name, but it was his determination and commitment that were at the heart of solving the case of the department store bomber. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. In the early 1980s, a number of marginalized women go missing in Anchorage, Alaska, but few people seem to care. Then the bodies start appearing, buried in shallow graves in remote places. A pattern emerges, linking many of the missing women to a mysterious man who entices them with offers of money. When another victim is discovered in 1983, Homicide Detective Sergeant Glenn Flothy of the Alaska State Troopers is assigned to lead the investigation. Quietly determined, Flothy joins the dots and comes to a shocking conclusion. There's a serial killer on the loose. Before long, Flothy believes he knows who the killer is, but can he prove it? And more importantly, can he stop his prime suspect before he kills again? Join us for Hunting the Hunter next week on Detectives Don't Sleep.